Alright, a solo show. It's been a while, but let's do this. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yannis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. Normally on this show, we bring fans and critics together, kind of democratizing the film criticism world and allowing people to come on every episode, different guests, to discuss a film that really means something to them, uh, that emotionally resonates with them, or that they personally connected to, and, uh, you know, bringing fresh voices to the world of film, as uh, as our slogan implies. So, this episode, however, we're taking a break from that format to look back on 2018 and talk about some of the films that really meant something or that that really uh, connected to me personally. And I know everybody's making a best of list this time of year. I really don't like to call them best of lists just because I feel like a film that's technically superior to something on my list. Uh, and again, technically superior, I guess, is, is up to uh, a matter of opinion. Um, but I feel like the ones on here are just the ones that I prefer, that they, they aren't necessarily the best, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not pretentious enough to declare, well, this is the, this is, these are the best films of 2018. This is why, that's why I always like to call it my favorite films of 2018, my favorite movies or so. And, uh, so they're not necessarily the best. Um, I also didn't see everything thanks to my 2018 holiday binge, uh, in which I, posted a review of a different 2018 film every day for the month of December. I did uh, get the chance to catch up with a lot of films that I, I would have otherwise not been able to see, uh, either that hit theaters in December or are still in limited release or are like the little indie movies that probably would have escaped my radar had I not had a, an easy copy available. Um, so, you know, big shout out to the Online Film Critics Society, of which I'm a member, and uh, the many studios that sent out award season screeners uh, to that organization because that was a tremendous help in helping me feel like I had a a better handle on this list and 2018 as a year in film than I have in years past. So, uh, you know, if you want to read some of my 2018 holiday binge reviews, visit crookedtable.com and check those out. There's 31 of them, so chances are you'll find <laughs> you'll find something interesting or to your uh, to your interest. Uh, also, they, I did consider um, mostly theatrical releases here, um, just because I, I was looking for reasons to to kind of focus in the list, and uh, unfortunately that means things that I liked, like To All the Boys I've Loved Before or Set It Up, uh, wouldn't have really made the cut, but, um, you know, just like I said, I was looking for reasons to... Uh, to to whittle down the list even more so both of those films especially to all the boys uh, I would ha- absolutely recommend so if you haven't seen uh, that one on Netflix definitely check that out um, and I also did consider diversity in uh, voices and genres uh, that kind of thing just so this wouldn't be like half superhero films um, because I, there, this was a great year for comic book movies uh, with the exception of something like Deadpool 2, which I didn't really care for it so, so much. So uh, just as a few notes to keep in mind before we delve into uh, into the episode. Um, I will divide this episode into kind of two parts or sections. The first one is going to be my honorable mentions. So that's basically my 11 through 20 um, in alphabetical order. And uh, we'll do the same for my top 10, just alphabetical order. I'm not really huge on 
necessarily feeling like I haven't have to rank things. So I'm just go uh, National Board of Review style and list them out in order with a special shout out to probably my favorite one. Um, if you're interested in other films that I enjoyed uh, beyond those 20, uh, you can go to crookedtable.com and in this post for the post for this episode, I will you know sprinkle in uh, as many as many of the the other titles that I really liked in the post as possible. So um, let's just jump into the honorable mentions without further delay here, starting with Blockers. Now this is directed by Kay Cannon, who's known primarily as the screenwriter of the Pitch Perfect franchise, and from the outset this really looked like. A just another sex comedy, um, just with the bit you know with a bit of a gender switch, and I think what you get when you focus on teenage girls and when you have a woman directing the film is you get a film that's much more uh, much more based in character, much more based in emotion, and as it actually brings a lot more heart to its concept than you would uh, than you would initially expect. And I think not only with the performances of the three main girls, but also Leslie Mann, John Cena, and Ike Barinholtz, especially as someone that's a father of a uh, a young girl who will one day be facing this uh, similar situation, uh, I think you know it, it really it really found a way of infusing the comedy with uh, with a lot of heart and emotionality. And uh, you know, a lot of people this year I think are, are really praising Game Night, and I think that's a great film. And it's not quite in my honorable mention. Spoiler for the next few uh, selections, I guess. But um, I think Blockers has it beat just because it has more range to it. And as much as I love comedies, I feel like most of the comedies I see um, engage so much in being silly and jokey that they, um, you know, they they forget to create characters that we can really care about. And uh, you know, just expect you to get swept up. In the uh, in the ridiculousness of it all, without really, um, you know, without really crafting something uh, quite as memorable as um, other films, as as creating creating characters, they focus on jokes over characters, and that's a real shame. And I think Blockers was an exception. Moving on, we're going to talk about Creed Two. This um, this film actually, I was really surprised. This did not have Ryan Coogler returning to direct it. So I think a lot of people were expecting it would be very subpar, and to some people it is. It's it's easy to say that it's not uh, it's not as fresh as your first Creed, and you know that's fair. Um, and it's because of that it's not technically it's not probably not a, probably a weaker film. However, I I think not only by delving into the history of uh, Adonis Creed, but also talking about Rocky Balboa and serving as kind of a much delayed sequel to Rocky Four with the return of Dolph Lundgren and the, the uh, Drago family. I, I think it really taps into the the legacy of the franchise as well as the characters in a way that was very befitting of the concept of focusing on Apollo Creed's son in the first place. Not only that, I, I think it deepened the relationship between um, Michael B. Jordan's character and Tessa Thompson's in an, in a really interesting and in a, in some ways kind of profound way. Um, as far as you know, what happens with uh, with their relationship, um, I do think that also the performances are really strong across the board. Michael B. Jordan is proving that he's consistently one of the most underrated young actors. And you know, while the fight scenes weren't as cinematic as the first film, I, I did I did feel like uh, it did feel like a natural extension of all the themes 
that were going on not only in the previous one but in the seven or the six before that um so it was a worthy addition to the rocky franchise and probably probably my third or fourth uh probably no probably my fourth favorite in the franchise after the original rocky creed and uh yeah so it's like right up there for me my next film selection here is isle of dogs i've never been a wes anderson stan um, there's actually still a few of his films that I haven't seen. I should probably make that a goal for 2019 since his filmography is not even that deep. But uh, I've oh, I've always been a I've always had a soft spot for stop motion and the the way that he tells the story. Uh, and I know it's gotten some controversy from uh, you know from critics for being sort of cultural appropriation that kind of thing. And that, that you know that's that's a fair criticism. And I, I mean I understand the the sensitivity with that. Um, I also feel like the film really, uh, in a way, is trying to pay tribute to Japan and there's that style of filmmaking and and that culture. Uh, maybe it doesn't always come across as as genuine as it should, but um, I think the characters are really fun and really memorable, and it, you know it, it nails that Wes Anderson-y tone in, in such an interesting and uh, specific way. Um, you don't really realize how distinctive a voice Anderson has until you see a new film from him. And it, it, it turn the fact that he can turn on a dime from tragedy to comedy and back again, uh, always infusing his kind of his, his very specific brand of quirkiness and unexpected twists. And, uh, it, it the film was a great example of quintessential Wes Anderson. So if you're a fan of Wes Anderson movies, you probably love this one or would love this one. Uh, if you find his films kind of obnoxious or overly pretentious, um, this is probably not for you. So just bear that in mind if you haven't seen Isle of Dogs. Going into the next selection here, from one animal to another, Paddington 2. So Paddington was a very big surprise for me uh, in, what was it, 2014 or 2015? I forget when we saw it here stateside. I think it might have been early 2015 that that Kai and I saw that one in theaters so I was really surprised by the way that it's the kind of family film we don't get very often anymore in that it they don't pander to kids it's no there's no bodily jokes there's no farts really or anything like that um it's it's really just focusing on uh, wholesome entertainment creating characters that kids can learn from or emulate and uh it's it's just really a human story, and I don't think, I don't think enough family entertainment, with the exception of Pixar, uh, really understands that this is an opportunity to teach kids about compassion, about uh, being a good person, about r- like real life lessons, about the importance of family and things like that. And I think Paddington really established such an interesting and unexpected tone with that, and Paddington too really just developed it even more so. Um, focusing on the difference that one one person can make in a community, and I think um, you know you can see that in Paddington's influence that he had on the other inmates when he got when he got imprisoned, uh, and the magical transformative effect of his marmalade. Uh, I think uh, you you know you also get a a standout performance, a BAFTA nominated performance from Hugh Grant as the villain. Just a a really a really sweet and uh, sweet simple but also complex emotionally 
uh, film and definitely one that deserves mention here. I know some people have actually even had it in their top tens and I can't really fault them for that. It's Paddington 2. It's, very, it's a very special movie. Now we're going to talk about Sorry to Bother You. Now this is an this is a this was probably my biggest WTF uh, release of the year, simply because I I didn't really know anything about it. I knew it was very very kind of strange. I knew that it was very uh, felt very unique, and I know that I knew that it had something to do with race, but I wasn't exactly sure what device it was going to use to address that. So seeing this film that focuses so much on uh, on perception and, uh, you know, kind of the, the pressures of race relations, but does so in a way that get that starts out very stylized and then gets even more bonkers from there, really surprised me. I, I think there are scenes in here that didn't quite hit me as well as I think they were hoping for, sometimes where the absurdity really gets a little over the top in my for my taste. But... Um, for the most part, there's a lot of director Boots Riley here, who's a first-time filmmaker, by the way, as was Kay Cannon for Blockers. I should have mentioned that. Um, he really, he really uh, he creates something that you've nobody's ever seen before, and that that alone is to be commended. Um, you know, there's a lot you can read into the subtext of where this movie goes, and uh, you know, some of it is a little bit of on the nose with the symbolism and things like that. But I think there's a lot to dig into here, and I have yet to actually watch this a second time. I would really love to do that. I think uh, I think it would definitely reward repeat viewing, so hopefully I can get a chance to visit this again soon. And if you haven't seen Sorry to Bother You, which sadly kind of flew under the radar, I think, for a lot of people. It had a theatrical run that was over way too quickly. I would definitely check that out and uh, get, give it a look, because it's, it's an interesting and uh, weird little film. Of course, now moving into Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. This is one of the newest ones, I think, on this list as far as uh, theatrical release. Actually, I think it might be the newest one. Um, this was such a blast. I'm a, I've been a fan of Spider-Man since the 90s cartoons, watching those, playing Maximum Carnage with my friends. I got a sleepover, I remember, like in the holidays, uh, back in the early to mid-90s. And, uh, you know, when I'd heard about an animated Spider-Man, I, I was a little skeptical. Sony's history with the property, I mean, look at Venom. Uh, Sony's history with the property has been spotty at best. So I wasn't in initially like psyched about a Spider-Man animated film uh, just because I was worried about the execution of it. And when I heard it was going to center on Miles Morales, I was familiar. I've heard of heard of Miles Morales, but I wasn't I'm not really steeped in uh, in that version of the character. So I didn't really know what to expect going into a Miles Morales Spider-Man tale. So the fact that this not only tells his origin story, but also ropes in the Spider-Verse comics, dealing with Peter Parker and, and uh, Gwen Stacy and Spider-Ham and Spider-Man Noir and Penny Parker, and, and I think that was a really smart way to not only not only introduce the world to Miles Morales, you know, the larger movie-going world, um, but also open up basically endless franchise opportunities for this for this series so if they want i mean i know they're developing a spider-verse sequel there's talk of doing a uh spider gwen movie which i think is a smart move because that was one of the standout characters for me as well they could literally make movies of pretty much any of these characters uh and bring in other versions of the character and 
and it would totally fit with the established canon. Um, you know, this is it's very, um, very much emulating a comic book. You have the the speech bubbles popping up. You have like the sound, uh, the sounds written out. Thwip at one point, which was a real highlight for me. Um, and I think it it honors the history of this character in a way that. Uh, in a way that we haven't really seen before, which is why it's fitting that it has a Stan Lee tribute at the end. Um, it's basically the Marvel equivalent of the Lego Batman movie, which I think does a similar similar sort of treatment to that character. Humorous, um, but also reverent to uh, everything that has come before in uh, the character's history. Okay, now next one we have Suspiria. So this one almost made my top 10. It was... It was close, um, and it's probably the reason it didn't is because it took me a while to really figure out how I felt about this movie because it does go to really dark and kind of crazy places, and uh, it, it does feel a bit overlong to me. Um, I'm not knocking it because it, it it goes a little batshit towards the end. I think that was always kind of expected, at least on my end. With this film, I, ha- I still haven't seen the original. I've been meaning to went to go watch that before um, before I saw the new one, but I did not get a chance to. And you know, with the holiday binge, I've been focusing more on newer movies. So I'll definitely try and squeeze in uh, squeeze in a watch of the original Suspiria from uh, Dario Argento. Argento, excuse me, very soon. Um, but this one, I I thought was a real, uh, really interesting take on sort of a woman's coming of age and coming into her own and using witchcraft as uh, as sort of the metaphor for that and um you know you have not only an int- a really a really interesting performance from Dakota Johnson but also a few interesting performances from Tilda Swinton uh one of which I you know in the lead up to this movie a lot of they were being very cagey with whether or not she plays a particular role and, uh, you know, I don't understand why she's not in the Best Supporting Actress conversation for this film, just because she does do so many different things. And and um, I think people kind of take Tilda Swinton for granted at this point. The makeup effects in this film are bananas. Uh, I, I think it's definitely a shoe-in for that. And um, it, it's just a really, you know, edge-of-your-seat thrill ride. Uh, and it, it just made me feel very uneasy the whole time, which was obviously the intention tom tom york's score and his uh, original songs uh, really added to that as well so um you know this is i think it's it's an amazon original movie but i don't know if it's on amazon prime just yet but if you're a horror fan and you haven't seen this it did really uh not perform particularly well in theaters unfortunately as far as i know so um definitely track down suspiria if you have any interest in the horror genre, or especially if you're a fan of Dario Argento's original. All right, next we're going to talk about Tully. So this I saw a couple times in theaters. I thought it was good, but the the twist didn't really hit me as well as I would have hoped initially. Um, when I rewatched it with Kai, actually, um, since the movie is so so much about motherhood and the uh, the emotions that follow, you know, balancing everything in your life is in, in, in the in the film Charlize Theron actually has uh, a trio of kids so um you know I, th- I think as a parent there's a lot of truth in this movie a lot of harsh reality about what it's like to be a parent to be a mother specifically and uh you know how it how it can take a toll on you and how a family needs to really 
stick together in order to get uh, in order to overcome a lot of the adversities and obstacles that life throws at you especially being a parent and as a man i was watching this the first time as a father watching this the first time feeling really uh you know kind of underrepresented to start with and i think that's kind of the point a lot of a lot of men um a lot of men have a tendency to slip into complacency letting the mother do everything for early childhood especially like the first year or so of life just because if you're breastfeeding there's there as the movie addresses there's not really a whole lot that we can do to soothe the child at that point it really does kind of fall on the mother and i think it's it's easy to forget that that really can wear down on uh, on the moms out there and this film really shines a light on on that on co- sort of a version of postpartum uh depression and ultimately it has a really powerful message that really hits me as a father and a husband and uh, as a parent in general so uh if Tully is probably one of the best films that I saw last year that virtually nobody went to see um so if you're a fan of Jason Reitman I would definitely check that out it's got great performance from Charlize Theron that uh, definitely deserves to be in the conversation this award season all right, next, Widows. Steve McQueen, not the actor Steve McQueen, the director Steve McQueen, uh, made a lot of, uh, a big impact with 12 Years a Slave. And coming back with Widows, which is essentially a female-led heist film, uh, I think, you know, he finds a really interest, a really, a really interesting way to balance um, his more art house sensibilities and bring them to what is essentially a popcorn flick. Um, I think there, you know, there's a lot of a lot of great stuff going on in this movie, from Viola Davis, from Elizabeth Debicki, especially, um, from uh, Michelle Rodriguez, and uh, you know, the film packs a lot of twists in there. I feel like towards the end, it kind of it's a little bit unfulfilling, which is why it didn't quite make my top ten. But there's so much strong stuff going on here, from Daniel Kaluuya, from Brian Tyree Henry. Uh, just just a real really strong ensemble cast of characters and a film that you know is marketed kind of as one thing and I don't think really I don't think it's really quite that I think it's a lot more reflective of the genre than than most heist films really are than something like Ocean's 8 for example which is all like kind of flash and uh, not so much with the the uh, heavy thematics and i think widows uh and this is sort of like what i said earlier about k cannon's direction of blockers when you have when you bring a woman to a traditionally uh male genre or subject matter i think it it un- it uncovers a lot of complexities that are otherwise missed by male filmmakers uh, and it's so it's interesting that in this film it's actually a man behind the camera but he still has that uh that sensibility and you know these strong actresses in in the camera uh starring in the film kind of bringing out uh bringing out something new to this kind of material uh, and so all credit goes to the main ladies for that um also want to give a shout out to Cynthia Erivo who uh was a, a standout for me in Bad Times at the El Royale and in this film as well. So um, definitely loved Widows. I uh, think 
it's uh, deserved a lot more love. I don't think it did particularly well at the box office. A lot of these, it's kind of a running theme with a lot of my my favorite films this year is that a lot of them uh, kind of missed the casual moviegoers, which is which is a real shame. But um, you know, it's I think it's available. It's either on it's either on demand or on Blu-ray already. So definitely track down Widows if you haven't. Lastly, and the last honorable mention here, we're going to talk about Joaquin Phoenix and You Were Never Really Here. I'd heard a lot about this film going in. This is another one from a female filmmaker. This is Lynn Ramsey here from uh, We Need to Talk About Kevin. And I didn't know exactly what to expect. I knew it was really kind of a taut thriller, very intense, and, and that was basically sustained for the full runtime. But, um, you know, with the aid of the score and a very... Uh, a very committed performance from Joaquin Phoenix. Pardon my voice, I feel really stuffy this morning. Um, I, uh, you know, I wasn't really prepared for how, just how much this film really just focuses on the main character and his psyche and what's going on in his head. Um, because the plot of it is pretty straightforward. Um, you know, he, he is this, this man that, that's, uh, paid to, Basically, kind of kind of mercenary, paid to to save girls, paid to 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 uh, basically take people out, and um, it, when a job goes wrong, it kind of spirals out of control. But it really, more than it's focusing on the plot, this film is really about this man and everything he's endured and how that has shaped who he is and who he's become. And I think that was a really fascinating take on a kind of quasi revenge thriller sort of deal. Uh, Phoenix has been known to deliver these really, um, really sort of transformative performances. And I, you know, if, if his take on the Joker is going to be anything like what he does here, I think we're, we're in for something really, really impressive and kind of special. All right. Here it is. The top 10 or my favorite, 10 favorite movies of 2018. Um, as I mentioned with the honorable mentions, this is going to be in alphabetical order. So, you know, I will make specific mention when I talk about what I consider probably my favorite film of 2018. But other than that, we'll just go in alphabetical order. Um, So let's, you know, let's get started with Avengers Infinity War. Of course, this is on here. Uh, I feel like most years there's at least one uh, MCU movie that makes that makes my top 10. And, you know, I feel like people criticizing this movie are really looking at it through the wrong lens. When it came out, um, you know, I think it, it it rightfully could receive criticism where, oh, it's, you know, it just rushes along, the characters are underdeveloped, and it's just well, whatever, it's just a like, sprawling movie. But the, the point of this is that it's the culmination of, what, 20, 22, it's 22nd um, Marvel Cinematic Universe film. There is no, the, the, you can't judge this film for not establishing the characters or delving deep enough into them. A lot of them do have kind of arcs. Yeah, we don't get Captain America very much, but we get a lot of Iron Man, we get a lot of Doctor Strange. Really, the main character here is Thanos, and it's it's mo- mostly sort of a first part of a two-part kind of quasi-season finale of the MCU, so you can't really judge it by the same, by the same uh, criteria that you would something like Ant-Man and the Wasp, for example. So... Um, for to that regard, I feel like as a payoff for everything that's come before, you know, we we see the Guardians and the Avengers clash for the first time, or or encounter each other for the first time. We see kind of the payoff of Thanos 
finally getting the Infinity Gauntlet, um, and or at least trying to get the Infinity Gauntlet. I don't know spoilers for the like two people of you that haven't seen this. It's streaming on Netflix now, by the way, so you don't have any excuses left. Um, the visuals look incredible. The score is is, is great. Um, the way in which the characters uh, interplay and connect is uh, is a lot of fun. And uh, you know, I want to give a shout out specifically to not only Josh Brolin as Thanos and all the, the the kind of nuanced work that he manages to convey with motion capture, but also Zoe Saldana, who I, I think has more to do as Gamora in this film than in both the Guardians movies. Yeah, she's in those movies and she has a pivotal leading role, but um, you know I feel like here we really get to know more about Gamora herself. And, uh, you know, I'm really looking forward to, obviously, this goes without saying, I'm really looking forward to Avengers Endgame. It's probably one of my top, probably possibly my most anticipated film of 2019, just because I'm really curious how they're going to follow this up and uh, where they're going to take the franchise going forward. All right, next we have Black Klansmen, which I was not expecting to love as much as I did. And the fact that this is, for those of you who don't know, this is the Spike Lee-directed film based on real events of a, an African-American cop in Colorado Springs in the 1970s who went undercover as a member of the Ku Klux, Ku Klux Klan. And, uh, you know, using another cop as sort of a doppelganger, I thought John David Washington and Adam Driver as the two sides of Ron Stallworth in this film were, were really, not only did they, not only were they, you know, great at, at the drama at the dramatic stuff because obviously this is a film dealing with racism so there's there's a certain amount of heaviness that's unavoidable um but the film also infuses a lot of it gets a lot of comedy out of this kind of fucked up situation and i think that was really impressive that you find yourself laughing at it one moment and then like you find your you see your you feel your heart sink the next and it it, it perfectly encapsulates sort of the complicated nature of racism in modern society and how the more things change the more they stay the same kind of thing and uh, you know I thought it was really a, a masterful balance of tones that Spike Lee brought to this and granted I haven't seen all his films but this definitely felt like um, at least a recent highlight for me from him um, and I'm hoping it's one that uh, gets a lot of Oscar love uh, just because it it does my thing with movies is that a lot of times it's the movies that I walk out of feeling like they they accomplish something either that I'd never seen before or that I didn't even know could be done on screen before. And Black Klansman and there's you know a lot of the ones in this a lot of the films in this top ten I feel like fit this criteria. Black Klansman pulls off what I like to call sort of a magic trick in movies where it it finds or it makes a funny movie about racism that is also equally just as he- just as heavy and powerful as that subject matter deserves um so it, it, of course i was going to always make my top 10 list but it wasn't one that i you know going in that i expected to really uh, enjoy and kind of admire that much next film here we're going to talk about is black panther this is the second marvel cinematic universe film on this list uh and I was not, you know, I was not initially really 
looking to put two Marvel movies on here. There's, you know, in the past, I think when I've had a Marvel film in my top 10, it's usually been one, definitely not two from the same franchise. So this is the first time that that's ever happened. But I think it's a testament to the fact that I believe Infinity War and Black Panther are the two best films that the MCU has made to date. Um, I was saying earlier about how Infinity War can't really be judged by the same criteria as the solo films. Um, Black Panther obviously is is a solo film, so I'm I'm judging it based on the same kind of what perspective that I'd bring to Iron Man or an Ant Man film or a Captain America film. But to me, this film is the first one in the Marvel Cinematic Universe to really say something about society at large. It has the the most social context uh, and social commentary. And, uh, you know, it's the, it feels like the first MCU film that's really about something. And for that reason, it, it rises to the top as not only the best in the MCU, but probably my favorite film of 2018. Uh, I think Chadwick Boseman is really is really great here and really brings a, a regal and com- conflicted presence to this role. Michael B. Jordan delivers an amazing performance that I hope gets some big nominations uh, in the months ahead. But not only that, I feel like the the way the world building here, the fact that Wakanda actually feels like a real place. We had three Thor movies, and ultimately they couldn't make Asgard feel tangible to the point that the third Ragnarok's big uh, big finale ends up declaring that Asgard is a people and not a place, just because nobody cares about the place. I guess is a good reason for that. Uh, in this film, you care about Wakanda, you care about the side characters like Shuri, and. Uh, and Nakia, you feel, you, and oh, and um, Okoye, let's not forget her, she's great. Uh, all the characters are, are lovable and you want to see more of them. And, you know, the, the score by Ludwig Göransson is, is tremendous. The visuals, the way it's shot, the costume design, everything about this film to me is, is astounding. Yeah, there's a little stuff in the finale where it gets a little, a little template to me, a little formulaic with the Marvel comics where the hero is fighting a bad version of his, himself, which which tends to happen in pretty much every Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. This is the first film where it actually didn't bother me, I think mostly because it, it kind of fit, you know, it fit the, the story in that Killmonger was trying to uh, was trying to sit on the throne of Wakanda, so they're competing for the same role, so it makes sense that they would sort of uh, have similar looks uh, in the final fight. And yeah, the, some of the CG's a little overblown, that kind of thing, but not only, you know, everything else seems to be perfectly in place. So this is a, to me, a kind of a near-perfect comic book film, um, and, uh, you know, definitely one that I've already revisited a few times, as well as kind of pl- incessantly played the soundtrack. So um, Black Panther, easily the, you know, my favorite movie of the year. So I mentioned at the front of this podcast that the 2018 holiday binge really helped me feel like I had a, uh, a handle on the year in film and that I had I could confidently make these lists knowing that I'd seen most of the big highlighted movies. So this is a perfect example of that because this film that I'm about to talk about is the first on this list that I only saw because of the 2018 holiday binge. And at that, even at that rate, it was one of the a late addition to that schedule that I almost forgot to to sneak in there. Of course, I'm talking about blind spotting, which is by far kind of the most underrated and least discussed, other than film Twitter, film of the year. Uh, I don't, I did not plan it this way, but this is the third consecutive film that I'm talking about here that deals heavily with race, that comes from uh, you know a uh, filmmaker of color, and 
I, I was not planned that way, I promise you. It's just the way the alphabet kind of lands. And uh, this is a film starring David Diggs and Raphael Casal, where they play uh, best friends, co-workers for a moving company in Oakland. And the story is told through their perspective, delving into all kinds of issues regarding race as far as identity and racial politics and, you know, police brutality and, and a lot of it's it's as I mentioned in my review on crookedtable.com, it's both sort of a condemnation of and a love letter to the city of Oakland, where both of these actors actually grew up and uh, they you know, they knew each other when they were kids. So it it the fact that they not only star in the film together but also wrote the screenplay together and also sort of uh dominate the soundtrack, which is very uh, very, very tied to the hip hop community, uh, is, you know, is, you can feel it in the film. It feels like a personal project to them. And you can tell that this is something that really means a lot to them as, uh, as artists. So, uh, you know, I, I, obviously Black Panther and Black Klansman even are kind of more palatable films about race. Uh, but blind spotting isn't, it's not a, it's not a, it's a heavy movie, but it's also kind of like Black Klansman. It it has a lot of levity in it throughout and looks at it from a very specific lens. And um, for the finale alone and like the, the emotional gut punch that it delivers, I think this is definitely one worth watching. And it, I, it baffles my mind that David Diggs is not leading the best actor race right now because... He is incredible in this movie in in every sense of the word, and the fact that blind spotting is so little seen and so little uh, recognized for everything that it accomplishes, I think, is one of the biggest travesties of 2018 cinema. So, hopefully, we'll get at least a screenplay nomination, something for that, because this is a a really outstanding film that I completely took me by surprise even though I'd heard it was great. So, uh, blind spotting, definitely check that out. Moving on to Crazy Rich Asians. I, first of all, I gotta explain, not only am, am I a huge fan, obviously, obviously if you've listened to this podcast and you've heard me allude to my political leanings and stuff over the years, all about diversity, um, you know, all about seeing more people on screen, uh, more different, different voices on screen, behind the camera, and all that stuff. However, with that in mind, I also grew up with a lot of rom-coms. You know, my mom is, as you heard on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, she loves, you know, she's really into big into sentimentality. She loves watching romantic movies. So a lot of Nora Ephron, a lot of Nancy Myers, a lot of, uh, you know, and the sad thing is that a lot of those romantic comedies are really terrible. And so we don't, you know, probably because of that, uh, a lot of moviegoers have stopped going to see them, which is why to all the boys I've loved before, one of probably one of the best rom-coms of the year is a Netflix film because very few of them ever get big theatrical, you know, releases at this point. I think Crazy Rich Asians is probably the best in a long while that we've seen. Um, not only from a comedic standpoint, but and a romantic standpoint, hence the rom-com part of it all, but not, and from representation, but also just like, there are sequences in this film that are really, I'm thinking specifically of the wedding scene. There are sequences of this film that are really beautiful. And it says a lot to say about, uh, the endurance of love, about the importance of making peace with your significant other's, uh, family. I think Michelle Yeoh is great in this. I think Constance Wu is great in this. Henry Golding is great in this. 
um aquafina is great in this it's such a uh an such a great cast and the fact that yeah they're all asian american actors asian or asian american actors but this is not a token slot i know people some people similar cynical people listening to this list might be like well he's you know he mentioned up front about diversity and so he's just putting a lot of things in here it's like affirmative action as far as film is concerned but this film actually literally hit me really hard um and felt like a throwback to those really quality, uh, well-made rom-coms that I grew up with. Uh, you know, the fact that it that it brought Asian Americans to the forefront in a way that we haven't seen on this scope before made it all made it feel all the more special um, to me as as a uh, as a moviegoer, as a film critic, as a a a student of pop culture. So um, Crazy Rich Asians, probably one of the ones on here that more more people have seen other than Black Panther, um, but definitely one that was worthy of being on here. And, uh, you know, if you haven't read the books, check out the books as well. And thankfully, we're going to get uh, sequels coming soon. Now, the second film, the next one is the second film from the 2018 Holiday Binge that I only just saw a couple weeks ago. And man, was it great. So I'm talking about Bo Burnham's Eighth Grade. This is the movie that, another small movie that a lot of people didn't see, other than film critics, apparently, um, stars Elsie Fisher as a, well, eighth grader. <laughs> She's just kind of on the verge of, of uh, beginning her high school years. And I, for obvious reasons, I've never been a teenage girl. Um, but I think the film touches on sort of a universal truth about being this age, about not feeling like you belong as a kid or not feeling like you're not a kid anymore, but also not feeling like you fit in with the adults. You don't fit in with your peers. You're kind of trapped in this weird adolescent limbo. And, um, you know, you don't know how to conduct yourself. You don't, you, you don't know what to do at parties. You, you don't know how to talk to people or, or you're over, always second guessing everything you do. I mean, I, you know, I'm very introverted, so I kind of still feel that way to an extent. So I think this film really captures what it feels like to be that age and to deal with those issues, especially for the modern era. You know, um, I'm in my mid thirties, so I didn't have to deal with social media and all that stuff when I was, uh, when I was, you know, a teenager, it was, wasn't even a thing yet until actually until like my grad school years and things like that. So, um, eighth grade finds a way of, of taking something that's easily relatable, but making sure that it comes from a current prism where today's teenagers can really resonate with it. So, um, not only is there a lot of humor to be kind of yielded from this premise, but there's there's it's there's some real dramatic heft involving uh, involving the character Kayla and her father and um, you know again feeling as as I come from a lot of I come to a lot of these movies uh, from the standpoint of a, a husband and father now and you know I did a whole podcast on this last year of how being or maybe even the year before that I did a whole podcast on this a while back about how being a dad has changed the way I watch movies you can find that uh, on the on crookedtable.com or in the the uh, Apple podcasts or Spotify feeds for the for the show. Um, so that part of it, you know, I, I connected with the father character as much as I connected to the uh, the girl, the main girl. So um, it's it's a definitely a film to check worthwhile checking out if you've ever been an adolescent or a parent of an adolescent. Uh, you know, I think in the latter case, it'll you'll probably enjoy it even more. 
Okay, moving on to The Favorite, which is not my favorite film of the year, but it was in my top 10. It's definitely... Uh, I, I've been a tentative fan of Yorgos Lanthimos ever since I saw Dogtooth. Um, I liked some of The Lobster. I feel like the second half kind of loses its way a little bit. But of all the films I've seen by him, The Favorite is easily, well, my favorite. And I think that is that really ties back to not only his the not only the fact that he created an uh a unique take on the period piece but he um you know it features three outstanding performances from Olivia Colman, Rachel Weiss and uh Emma Stone but it has such a dark wry sense of humor and it's probably one of the most daring films of the year and where it goes with its uh with its subject matter with the relationships between the three women and just the forthrightness with with which it handles that it it says a lot about power dynamics it says a lot about um it says a lot about uh, relationships between women it says a lot about about i don't know it says a lot about the vindic- vindictiveness that uh people can inflict on one another when they feel like they're in competition and i think the the film brings such a uh, such a such a interesting and unique take on this kind of film uh, be far beyond anything we've seen before and yeah there's a certain level of weirdness and quirkiness that lanthimos brings to it um you know i'm thinking specifically of scenes where like emma stone is involved in, without spoilers involved in a very specific activity but is completely detached from it because her her mind is hyper focused on uh on getting in good with the queen and sort of improving her social status and things like that and and this sort of the contrast between between different uh ideals different goals different motivations i think it really makes this film kind of stand out as one of the best comedies of the year but also one of the one of definitely one of the best made films of the year um as far as the cinematography as far as the acting as far as the score the costume design so I, i'm thrilled to see that this is getting a lot of critical love and uh you know i think it all of that is well deserved lanthimos continues to get better and better and this feels like the perfect distillation of his uh his storytelling sensibility all right now we have hereditary which I remember coming out of this press screening for this one and you know you always have the uh, the PR people standing outside being like what what did you think and I I remember just being like what I I don't even know I uh I need to process I need to this needs I need to marinate on this a little bit um and throughout the film I think even early on I was really floored by Tony Collette's performance I remember kind of whispering to myself or like thinking to myself damn Tony Collette is a beast in this and she really is she does she she shifts from from creepy to uh to angry to uh like sympathetic to to oh, and and back again like const- constantly and uh, you know she's one of the probably one of the most unappreciated actresses right now i think cuz if you look back at her career yeah we everybody knows her from the sixth sense and Muriel's wedding and things like that but she has done you know if you watch the shaft movie from 2000 she's great in that movie and that's that's like ultimately not the not the best role. She's just kind of the damsel in distress victim that Shaft is trying to help out, basically. But um, every movie she pops up in, she's she is flawless in it. Yeah, Hearts beat loud. She had a small role in that this year. Um, 
And her performance really anchors this film in an incredible way. This is another first-time filmmaker. There's a lot of them this year um, on my top 20, I guess. Um, so, And director Ari Aster brings such... Uh, brings I don't know what I don't even know how to how to describe it, but he he connects like um, supernatural horror with family drama in a way that has never been done before. And there are things in this film, there are images in this movie that will haunt me for the rest of my life. And y- you know, the ending is just like I've never I've never seen a I've, it's rare that I see a finale of any film, you know, let alone a horror film that just has this sort of sustained dread in it where you're just like breathless at, as far as waiting to see how this is going to pan out and what note this film is going to leave you on. And Hereditary really felt that way. Um, probably one of the most graphic films of the year in a lot of ways, and definitely not one that Kai has any interest in seeing because of that. But um, the craft in here is so is so uh, so strong. The acting, as I mentioned, especially Tony Collette, that it, it absolutely had to make my list. Plus, you know, I like to try and keep one of these, at least one of my top ten slots for a horror film. In the past, it's been like Don't Breathe. I think last year was It. Uh, so. Hereditary definitely felt like the standout horror film for me this year. Granted, I haven't seen a lot of them, but, you know, stick stick around for CrookedTable.com for the, uh, you know, the Rewind Wednesdays, and hopefully I'll have reviews of more 2018 horror films that I missed out on in the coming weeks. But as far as what I did see, Hereditary was the easy winner. All right, now this other one, which I did not see in theaters, unfortunately, even though I'd heard good things, is Love, Simon. And um, I think a lot of people kind of dismissed this film saying that oh well it's 2018 you know there's lgbt has the lgbtq community has a lot of representation and do we really need a movie like this now and i think that's that is completely wrong-headed thinking and love simon is a it is it is a more hollywoodized version of the story than we've seen in the past and it certainly captures a lot of the uh, the awkwardness of being a teenager and sort of the uh, uncertainty of knowing who you are and what your place in the world is in a way like, uh, you know, eighth grade hand- handles a lot of those themes in a different way. But I think Love's, that's part of what makes Love, Simon so relevant is that in this film, the main characters, Simon's uh, parents are very liberal. He has friends that are cool. He's not worried necessarily about how they'll react. He's more just coming to terms with himself and i think that's a theme that you know no matter your your orientation that's a theme that can that you can connect to regardless not only that but the the story which i knew basically nothing about going in has this really interesting structure where um so i guess i should probably just outline the just the premise of the film so he finds out via Simon, played by Nick Robinson, finds out that in his school there is another gay person. There's sort of a, a website that's uh, kind of a blog that you can post on if you go to the school that that um, Simon attends. And he finds out that there's another gay gay boy, uh, gay man at his school. So he's um, he's sort of trying to find out who that is, and starts up strikes up a uh, you know a, a online conversation like an email chain back and forth with this person who calls himself blue so it's throughout the course of the film he's tried to 
uh, imagine who it is and solve the mystery and that kind of thing while protecting his own secret. And <clears throat> I think that was such an interesting, such an interesting way of, of handling the, the, you know, the story of a, the coming of age of a, of a young gay man. Um, and, you know, it, it, the, the, the central mystery is really compelling. Um, and the way that the film handles a kind of shifting, perspectives and giving you like uh you know exploring all the possibilities in from simon's perspective as in well if it's this person you know how would that look and how would that sound and you know uh it's i don't know it was a film that i've seen twice now and both times it it felt really the characters that it, it creates are not only you know are not only great within the context of the film but they're actually uh memorable and they're actually characters that i want to revisit and spend time with the little friend group in the center everybody has their own story and the way that they all play off against each other um it's definitely a film that i think is pertinent right now just because it does handle uh handle the story of a of a of a young gay man uh in such a liberal atmosphere and brings brings such uh such heart and compassion to that and, uh, you know, strong ensemble across the board. And I hadn't really seen anything from Greg Berlanti as a film director. I, you know, I watched The Flash and Supergirl and things like that, uh, of which Riverdale, of which he's a producer on, uh, and a kind of a, is he a co-creator on this? I'm not sure exactly, but um, I was really impressed with his work here. And I thought that Love, Simon is, <laughs> I have a tendency to be a real sucker for some of these YA adaptations, like The Fault in Our Stars made my list, I think, a few years back. Um, so Love, Simon definitely tapped into that hardcore. All right, last one in my top 10, because you knew I had to mention this because it's amazing. Mission Impossible Fallout. Uh, this is from writer-director Christopher McQuarrie, who's the first returning director in the franchise after doing Rogue Nation in 2015. And I don't know how he keeps finding ways to top himself, and I don't know how this franchise keeps getting better and better but this is the sixth mission impossible film and i feel like it is without a doubt the best i was kind of on the fence for a little bit with that but then when i saw it a second time i was like yeah no no this is the best i mean the halo jump sequence the the bathroom fight the uh, the whole thing at the end with the helicopter uh and the, the kind of the the mountaintop battle uh everything in this film is just pushes the limits of what you can do in an american action film uh, as far as the stunt work is concerned, as far as the visual effects, as far as the dramatic stakes, um, and it, it taps into the history of the franchise in a way that we've rarely seen before by bringing back uh, Michelle Monaghan and, uh, you know, in addition to Simon Pegg and Ving Rhames and things like that, Rebecca Ferguson. And um, Henry Cavill is, is, a, is amazing in this as, as um, sort of the wild card, I guess, of the, of the team. I, and I, I just, it's just a real achievement as far as action filmmaking is concerned this is easily one of the best action films i've seen in years and one that i can't wait to watch on blu-ray i do have own the blu-ray i've got it for christmas as of you know of my own request and um it, it's tom cruise is great in it and it, it really actually even six films in it even actually has something to say about ethan hunt as a man and what makes him different and the kind of the sacrifices that he makes in order to to be the hero that he he knows he has to be and uh, the fact that he actually cares about one person 
as opposed to, you know, that he actually cares about one person as much as a thousand people. And I think the fact that all human life matters to him and they really adds a lot of wrinkles to his character uh, in addition to really expanding the scope of the action itself uh, and the storytelling in, in general. And the, you should, if you haven't listened to them, definitely go listen to the Empire podcast, film podcast and uh, hear the multiple re- interviews they did with Macquarie about his, uh, his process and the, the, the ordeal that was making this movie because it's really impressive uh, especially when you hear firsthand from the filmmaker how he pulled this off, it's even that much more impressive that he pulled it off and that he did it so well. So uh, Mission Impossible Fallout was always going to make my list uh, just because I'm a huge fan of the franchise and it it is incredible what uh, the images that he was able to capture and the story that he's able to uh, that he's able to wrap around those um, unbelievable action sequences. So that's my top. 10 slash 20 of 2018. Again, this is uh, it's a completely subjective list. You know, uh, your your mileage may vary with all of these films. Uh, I would be interested if you've seen any of these movies, what you thought of them. Uh, so, just, you know, send me your thoughts on Twitter at Crooked Table or over email robert at crookedtable.com and uh, tell me what your top 10 films of the year were or, you know, what you thought of the ones that I, I chose. Um, I think... 2018 was overall a really great, uh, a really great year for cinema. Um, there are, as I mentioned at the top, there's still some I'd like to check out. So um, stay tuned to crookedtable.com for more of those reviews going forward. Uh, you know, but the fact that I was able to make not only a top 10 but a top 20, and then expand it out to a lot more other, a lot of other films. I mean, there was a good, there was probably a good, and I don't see as many films as a lot of film critics just because I don't have the time. Um, but there was a good, probably 40 to 50 films that I really, really liked slash loved this year. Uh, this just happens to be sort of a, you know, smattering of the ones that I liked the most, but, um, you know, my relationship to movies is very, is very, uh, flexible. So I might watch one of these movies down the line and not like it as much. I might see some of, I might see some of the ones that didn't make my list and appreciate them in a whole new way, or I might discover something new that will push one of these one of these films out of my top 10 or 20. So that's the great thing about movies is that your relationship to them changes over time. Um, and, you know, you, you get a new experience with each subsequent viewing, at least the best movies. So uh, definitely go and watch the ones that I mentioned. Let me know what you like this year. And, you know, thanks for listening to the Cricket Table Podcast. Next week we'll be back with our regular format. I appreciate you kind of taking this little detour with me, but I always like uh, retrospectives and looking back on uh, on a year in in film. So 2018 felt like a really special one. And hopefully we'll have even more great films ahead in 2019. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of a little KED.